And this is a music history podcast where I attempt to teach music history to my wife. Yay. <laughs> that was smooth that time. Yeah, that was we like really it. to the point. <laughs> Best we've ever done. That was abnormal. <laughs> All right. So follow us on social media. Twitter.com slash sound of history with an underscore. Facebook.com slash sound of history. And do you know what else I'm going to tell them they should do? Rate our podcast. There you go. Cool. <laughs> Subscribe on iTunes and whatever. Give us a little review. Let us know what you don't like that we're doing. Or let us know what you do I'm like. Just totally roast us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. Do you know what happened this week? It was a big week for our podcast. <laughs> was it? Yeah, we received two votes for best podcast in the national oh, scene, <laughs> best of Nashville awards. Yes, we did. I wonder who voted for us. <laughs> two whole votes. Two whole votes. <laughs> On an unrelated note, I really enjoyed filling out that uh, best of Nashville <laughs> form. That was fun. I'll Got to love on some of our, our local favorites. Yeah. And our favorite podcast. Well, this isn't my favorite podcast. It's I don't know not about mine you. either. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, what it is, is my favorite. No, what is your favorite? Mika is the host now. That's not your favorite. <laughs> You're lying. <laughs> That's no one's favorite. <laughs> well, Nothing. Mika is the host now. So I, I go on. I've not said more than like four words all day. I don't <laughs> know what to talk about. I mean, we're recording this like uh, several days later than we normally do. And so I've you thought have about I've thought about it, and I just don't care right now. I just don't have I don't have cares. Are you gonna like forego your segment? This is your chance. This is your show. I'm boring. That's not true. You've had. Very successful Mika as the host now up until this point. No, just like as a person. No. Yes. I have I have not a lot of thoughts in my head right now. You know what doesn't get nearly enough attention? What? But, but should get more attention than it already does? What? French fries. <laughs> okay. They get they get a lot of attention, but they should yeah. get more. Okay. So they're underrated, even though they're one of the most popular foods. Yes. <laughs> okay. 100%. <laughs> Except for those ones from Kroger. Those suck. Yeah, those were bad. Those were really bad. Don't anyone get the normal Kroger frozen French fries that like don't have anything special about them, just like your basic French fries? They're the worst. <laughs> this is like an anti-favorite things. Ooh. What are my other things that I hate? <laughs> You don't even have enough material for your one show and you're trying to launch a, a spin-off. Oh no, no, this is like <laughs> this is like the opposite week. What do I hate? Oh, um I really hate the decommissioned fire truck. <laughs> the party fire truck. Listen, I don't want to feel like I have to move over. No one knows for what the you're party talking truck. about. <laughs> Post a picture on Twitter, okay? I don't have a picture of the party there's fire one truck. On the, there's one on the internet. I don't know. Like, it's one of those, like, party vehicles. <laughs> like, they have, like, the, the hot tub and, like, the, the like, I don't know. What are they? They're, like, tractors, but not. I don't know. It's Nashville. We have, like, all sorts of various party vehicles, and they all are not that great, especially if you're trying to drive or, you know, avoid a pandemic. But 
the fire truck is the worst one because I always am like, oh, crap, a fire truck. And then I'm like, oh, no, it's just drunk people, which like no hate towards drunk people. That's cool. <laughs> but like, just don't be a on fire a fire truck. truck. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a very designated, like important vehicle. <laughs> Let's like preserve the honor of the fire truck. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Is that was that the end of your segment? Sure. Is Mika is no longer the host now. Mika is no longer the host now. I don't need this type of pressure. <laughs> now she's just annoyed. Yes. <laughs> That's why we don't do the anti ones. <laughs> you just get angry for the rest just of the show. Ay <laughs> And we need you in as good a mood as possible for today's topic. Or should I just be angry? I guess. Yeah. Do you want to give us a little bit of a recap of what we've been talking about the past few weeks? Irving freaking Berlin. Yep. Well, that was last week. He's my favorite. I'm still excited about him, though. And how often does that happen? Like a (laughs) week later? That's true. When I'm like, I know exactly what we talked about and I loved it. That is true. That rarely happens. What about before that? Broadway? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Broadway part two. Broadway part two with like those boys that are, I wanted to call them like the pickle boys. Yeah. They're the Gershwins. So gherkins. Yes. <laughs> pickle one and pickle two <laughs> is what you called them. <laughs> I, I <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know where they were brothers until halfway through the episode, even though That's they're correct. the Gershwin brothers. It, you know, I pay varying <laughs> degrees of attention to you. I'm trying to do better as your wife. I feel like I should listen when you talk. <laughs> nah. <laughs> I'm the worst person ever. <laughs> Anyway, if you're just listening to, like, the most recent episode of this podcast, like, I'm talking to you people who are listening this week, who are finding us this week, you one person, um, you should go back and listen to the previous episode. <laughs> even if even if I'm super boring in this one and, and it sucks or whatever, I don't know. This one is a rough topic, so. It, if it's. If, not gonna if be you're as not fun sure, as the past few weeks have been. if you're not sure, go back and listen to last week's because Izzy is my favorite. Izzy's great. He's so cute <laughs> and successful, and I just want to squeeze his little cheeks and say, <laughs> like, pat him on the head and say, "Attaboy." <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he would appreciate that. Do you think he would? No, <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't care. <laughs> eh. Oh well. Anyway, as we've Hint to that. Today we're talking about something less fun than we've been talking about. We put it off for like a month. We did. There was a phenomenon around this time that I'd like to ignore, but we can't. It led to so much of the music that we have today, so it's important to talk about it. So we're going to briefly examine race records and some of the key players in this genre, if you can call it that. I genuinely have no clue what this is <laughs> about. Like, Well, that was my next question. Do you know anything about race records? <laughs> I want to say it's like, I want to say it's like tr- recording and tracking like people of color, but I, I don't know how that plays into m- music. So Wait, like is it like records? Like, yeah, like recordings. Like records play? Oh. <laughs> so it was like a record, Not like, like a, a database. <laughs> No, it's like oh. So you're right. It is recording and putting on tracks African Americans, but not in the way you meant it. I, I don't. I'm dumb. <laughs> you're not dumb. I'm dumb. 
this little dumb baby. Race records are kind of hard to talk about because they aren't a genre in themselves. Basically, it's everything from blues to jazz to gospel that is particularly marketed and created for African Americans. It's not as bad as, like, minstrelsy, so we're not going all the way back to the dark side, but it's still, it can be a little rough around the edges. Because of the Great Migration, which we've talked about a bit before. I don't know what that means. (laughs) Are we talking about birds now? (laughs) Are we talking about the revolution and when we migrated from Europe? I don't know what it is. Those weren't the same things. (laughs) We came from I Europe <laughs> way before the revolution. <laughs> the Great Migration was basically when a whole bunch of African Americans from the South moved up north to like the cities uh, and the urban centers to okay. kind of escape the oppressive discrimination that was happening in the South. They went to the slightly less oppressive discrimination of the North. African-Americans at this point were starting to take their talents and their music to where the recording studios were because there weren't like huge ones down south. So they were starting to go to Chicago and New York where all of these like actual record labels existed. African-Americans for the first time were starting to make money and could buy records and go see performances. So like before this, record labels didn't really have to care about what they wanted because they couldn't buy anything. So like... We're not going to make music for you. We're not going to make products for you because you can't afford to buy it. But now they can. Commercial phonograph recordings were on sale as early as 1901, not earlier, but recordings by African Americans were few and far between. The few that managed to break through were not treated seriously. There were people like George W. Johnson, Burt Williams, and George Walker, the the Unique Quartet, and others but none of them were taken seriously as artists. They were novelty acts. Really, when they did achieve popularity commercially, white people looked to them as opportunities to reinforce their preconceived stereotypes of African Americans. Like, for example, Burt Williams and George Walker, they were huge in uh, vaudeville, and they were on Broadway for a little bit, and Burt Williams was an African American, but he always performed in blackface. I thought we talked about him. Yeah, we did. So he, like, they kind of... Basically, they had crossover success. Like, they were popular with white audiences, but they were more popular because they were, like, playing white music and, like, I don't know, just catering to what the white people wanted, basically. Okay. Here's a recording of George W. Johnson, who was, I think, the first African-American ever recorded. And uh, just this will give you, like, a little bit of an idea of what that kind of music was like before race records happened. The Laughing Song by it's George W. Johnson. Song. He's adorable. It's from 1898. His facial hair makes him look a little bit glossy, but in a good way. As I was coming around the corner, I heard some people say, Here comes the dark, and here he comes this way. He's a healer like a snowplow. His mouth is like a trap, and when he opens it gently, you will see a fearful gap as that I laugh. <laughs> I got study her from Larry. <laughs> I got study her from Larry. <laughs> Just I love it. 
That's George W. Johnson. He was a very popular back then. It's one of the first known recordings of an African American. Around 1920, African Americans started to be recorded more and more frequently. And this isn't because they were taken more seriously as artists. It's because the audience was seen as more marketable. What the year? Around 1920. Okay. So around the time, like, Crazy Blues, which was the first jazz song, was recorded. The record companies saw a market for African American music, so they started to exploit that. Around this time, artists like Bessie Smith and Mamie Smith skyrocketed in popularity because of their recordings. And that's basically like those two artists and a few others like them is what started the whole race records movement. The actual term race records is believed to have been coined by Ralph Peer. Do you remember Ralph Peer? No. <laughs> Does it even sound familiar at all? No. We've talked about him in like three or four episodes. Yeah, I have no clue who he is. He's the guy we talked about in folk and country. He was the engineer who did the Bristol sessions and the Atlanta sessions before uh, that. That guy. Mm-hmm. He would like came from one of the big companies. Okay, I think. So at this point, he was working for OK Records. OK was founded in 1916 to sell phonograph machines, but eventually branched out in 1918 to selling phonograph records. Isn't OK spelled really weird, and it makes yeah. me mad? O-K-E-H. OK. Because <laughs> it's like shorthand for the inventor's name or something. Okay, it has something to do with his name. It makes me think of OK Go. Like the band? Yeah. Oh, okay. Say OK Records, and I think about OK Go, and then I think about all the weird music videos, and then them <laughs> throwing a whole bunch of red balls. <laughs> I just think of the treadmill music video. Like, that's the only one that's I remember. Such from good, oh my gosh, they're all so good. Anyway. <laughs> so, OK was pretty new to the scene when all of these this, like, race record stuff started happening. In 1920... A vaudeville performer and composer named Perry Bradford convinced a higher-up at OK to record Mamie Smith. At this point, OK had a variety of different foreign recordings. They made records in Norwegian and Yiddish, specifically for those communities. Hey, what what country is Yiddish? <laughs> it's not a country, it's a language. Yeah, but like, what country speaks Yiddish? It's a high German-derived language historically spoken by the Ashkenazi Jews. Okay. It originated during the 9th century in Central Europe, providing the nascent Ashkenazi community with a high something. How did you know that so fast? Because I Googled it. Uh, how d- did you know I was going to ask that? As soon as you started asking, yes. I knew it was some <laughs> sort of Jewish thing, but I didn't know exactly what. So, yeah. So Perry Bradford wanted to convince OK to record an African American for that community. Because like, they were already doing all these very community-specific recording, so he's like, yeah, why don't you give the African-Americans some of their stuff, too? They agreed, and those records were smash hits. African-Americans rushed to the stores to buy more than 70,000 copies of the records, even though they cost about two hours of an average day's salary. Holy cow. Yeah. So they brought Mamie Smith back in to record Crazy Blues, which sold over 100,000 copies. This success led to OK creating a series of music called Original Race Records. These were recordings marketed specifically in African-American-owned newspapers. So just targeting that audience. 
Do you remember Crazy Blues? Do you remember when we talked about that? No. <laughs> it's the birth of jazz. It's when we talked about it because it's technically the first jazz song. We've seen it before, but as a refresher, here is Crazy Blues, the song that Mamie Smith recorded for OK and is the first recorded. I said blues song, but I'm pretty sure it's the first recorded uh, jazz song. That's what you no, said. No, 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 no. What? I'm wrong. It is blues. It's blues. Cause I'm not going to call you because I, I don't know. The first recorded jazz song was Livery Stable Blues by the original Dixieland Jazz Band because they were an all-white jazz group, so it's kind of a bummer that they were the first ones to record a jazz song. I like how the first jazz song has the word blues in it. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, no, 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 it's not the blues, it's well, the jazz. See, that's what threw me off, because this is crazy blues, and I knew their first jazz song had blues in the name. Gotcha. Okay, so yeah, sorry, Mamie Smith, first recorded blues song. And it was also the birth of race records. Jazzy feel. They're all kind of similar. I didn't really like it that much, and you liked it. See, to me, it just seems like very chaotic. Like, it doesn't feel like the instruments are going together well with her singing. It seems like they're all playing different melodies, and it just bugs me. There's a lot going on, and that makes yeah. my brain happy. <laughs> uh, OK Records then signed a guy named Clarence Williams, and over the next several years, he would go on to record countless race records for the label. Clarence had run away from home at age 12 to join a traveling minstrel show. After performing and entertaining a minstrelsy in vaudeville for a long time, he ended up in New Orleans and became quite popular as a local entertainer there. Clarence was a pretty savvy businessman and started to manage African-American theaters and saloons. He was kind of like a booking manager for them. After a brief stint in Chicago, he set up in New York in 1920. Through his time there, he became the primary pianist of the, on the race records for OK in New York. OK had two studi- studios, basically, New York and Chicago, so he was the primary one in New York. Clarence also recruited much of the African-American talent for the OK Race Records. You want to hear one of Clarence's songs? I do. All right. We'll see what He's this one is. He's just playing piano? Not sure. Don't remember this one. It's called Jazz Kid. Is that him with the huge glasses? I think so, yeah. Those are the biggest, nerdiest glasses <laughs> I've ever seen. Also, what's this guy doing over here with his little washboard? He just <laughs> looks like he's sneaky. He's, he's just hanging out. He's just that. He should have been turned the other way. I'm gonna go sleep to get a cookie. That's what he's singing in his head. I want a cookie. Too bad. This is a very boring This is extremely <laughs> boring. Does it get better? The tuba is just like... Boom, 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 boom. That's better. 
that was horrible. I mean, he wasn't. He was boom, more known boom, on the business boom, side than he was on boom, the performance boom, side. Boom, boom. Like I didn't hear piano because I just heard the the <laughs> freaking like boom, 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 boom. I didn't even hear the washboard either. It's because he snuck off to get. Cookie. Yeah, he did. He wasn't there. <laughs> he wasn't there. So OK was starting to get like really successful doing these race records. They would record this African American music and then market it directly back to them at prices that should have been too expensive, but it was working somehow. All these people were still buying the music, so other labels were quick to take notice of what OK was doing, since it was very successful, and they launched their own series of race records. The African American community, which had been excluded for so long in music and entertainment, couldn't get enough of these records. It's like representation matters or something. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a good thing we learned that back then. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Finally, they had a voice in the arts. I don't know if they knew or cared that they were basically being exploited for money. They were happy to hear someone from their community singing their songs and broadcasted on a national level. I bet you they knew. Oh, probably, yeah. I mean, I feel like at this point, it's the default setting. Like, they're just like, yeah, we're going to be exploited by white people because they suck. Like, that's <laughs> so in any situation, they're like, yeah, how are we being exploited now? Columbia got in on the race records trend and recorded blues singers like Ethel Waters and Bessie Smith. You want to hear Ethel, Ethel Waters? I wanted to hear Bessie. Well, too bad. Boo. Here's Ethel Waters with her song called Am I Blue? She's gorgeous. I'm just a woman. She's stunning. A lonely woman waiting on the weary shore. I'm just a woman that's only human. One you should be sorry for Woke up this morning alone about dawn Without a warning I found he was gone How could he do it? Why should he do it? he never done it before Am I blue? Am I blue? Ain't these tears? Waters. You. Are you? Yeah. Why? I don't know. That's the poor boy. <laughs> <laughs> We've discussed this all day. <laughs> I love Ethel. Big yeah. fan. Yeah, she was good. That was absolutely delightful. Paramount called itself the quote premier race label and recorded artists like Blind Lemon Jefferson and Charlie Patton. Do you remember Blind Lemon Jefferson? I remember laughing at his name. <laughs> In the 1930s, Decca produced what it called a Sapia series, which was, as far as I can tell, basically a subsidiary label for its race records. So they just set up a whole brand new label to handle their race records. Not all of the race record labels were white-owned. There was one called Black Swan Records, which was the first black-owned record label in the country which released about 150 records, some of them of African-American classical musicians, as well as people like Fletcher Henderson, 
but it struggled financially and was eventually swallowed by Paramount, who was I making good on its advertising of being the biggest premier race record level. I bet they struggled financially because they appropriately priced their stuff. Yeah. And also just because they didn't have, like, I don't know, uh, radio stations might be more hesitant to play their stuff. Mm-hmm. Stores might be more hesitant to stock it. I don't know. Just a whole bunch of different Bummer. stuff. Yeah, but yeah, Paramount, Paramount was like at this point on the top of the race records game. Like, okay, kicked it off, and Paramount was like, yeah, we're running with it, and just kind of like dominated for a bit. The non white owned labels were almost doomed from the start. They had little access to capital or technology and faced widespread discrimination and ra- racism. None of them rose to the heights to challenge the likes of OK or Paramount. So they tried, but couldn't really get it off the ground. The race records trend was kind of life-saving for these record labels, like the big ones. Really? They were, yeah, they were losing a lot of money and a lot of listeners to radio, which was starting to boom in the jazz age. Consumers didn't want to buy records when they could listen to the songs for free on the radio. Yeah, but this way you don't have to listen to all the ads. I don't know if there were ads back then. On the radio? Yeah. I'm sure any time that there's an opportunity for ads, there's ads. Because I know, like, people had radio shows that were sponsored. So it's like, this is the Craft Variety Hour. That was just sponsored the by Craft. Craft Mac and Cheese. Yeah, that was <laughs> literally one of them. <laughs> what? That was, I think we talked about that. That's hilarious. It was Rudy Valley's, maybe? I don't remember, but... Yeah, so I don't know if there were ads. I'm sure there were somehow. Do you think someone could sponsor us? <laughs> yes. Who do you want to sponsor us? Waldo's? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just give us free fried chicken and we'll... Listen, if you're here in Nashville, you're your... visiting Nashville. Or I think um, Tuscaloosa <laughs> is the other location. <laughs> I don't know, but listen, they got some good fried chicken. Okay, anyway. So yeah, these res- these race records were life-saving for these big labels that were losing out to radio. Mm-hmm. The record industry was failing during this point, but in the 1920s, race records alone sold over 5 million copies per year, and that could keep a label afloat. Wow. Also, they didn't have to pay the African-American performers much at all, <laughs> whereas big jazz artists were making a killing and demanded hefty fees these unknown blues singers traveling through the South could be pulled in for a recording session, given $100, and sent on their way. Dang. In other words, they could be easily exploited. A lot of the artists were put on records under a pseudonym, which meant they couldn't even turn successful records into larger performing careers. That's a bummer. And their songs had never been published, so these labels could snag the rights to the songs at the same time they were underpaid for the recordings. Wow. So they didn't even get, like, writing credits or any of that. Like, the labels would just own it and pay them a little bit to perform it. There was a sharecropper-turned-soldier named Big Bill Brunzi (laughs) who fled Alabama for the North during the Great Migration. He actually... I was just working on an episode, and Big Bill Brunzi comes up again in it. So, yeah, I didn't know he was in here. That's cool. I was just writing that one today. He fled Alabama for the North during the Great Migration, like so many other people. 
When he got to Chicago, he, like so many others, started to record his blues songs. He made over 100 records in a decade, but made no money. He said, quote, I didn't get no royalties because I didn't know nothing about trying to demand for no money. After being excluded for the entire history of the recording industry, African Americans didn't know how it worked, so they were easy prey. Wow. Like, he didn't know he was supposed to get royalties, so he'd never asked for them, and he never got them. Big Bill Brunsey is a cool guy, so just for fun, I'm going to play one of his songs. Awesome. I like him. Awesome. I want to see how big he is. He was one of the first generation of Chicago bluesmen. efficient to make these records because they only have to pay one person as opposed to a whole big brass band. Even if they were paying them fairly, that is. In my back door someday. Big Bill. Thanks, Big Bill. (laughs) Most of the artists who recorded these race records didn't sign any contracts, partly because they didn't know to, and partly because they were excluded from ASCAP, which is basically a company that protects artists' copyrights and collects royalty payments for them. That's still the thing, right? Yeah, ASCAP is. There's there's ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC. Those are like the three big ones that do it. The few that did have contracts had no way to enforce them, so a lot of the biggest names in recording were in some serious financial trouble. Bessie Smith, who was known as the Empress of the Blues, made millions of dollars for Columbia Records, but she didn't know how to read, so she never collected a single dollar in royalty payments because she could never, like, know to ask for a contract or anything like that. White audiences were not super aware of the race records that were happening since the records weren't marketed to them at all. They relied on white musicians who also played that kind of music. People like Paul Whiteman in the original Dixieland Jazz Band. Have we talked about Paul Whiteman yet? You're asking me? (laughs) I know we talk about him in the Bing Crosby special, which is not next week, but the week after that. But I don't know if if he's come up before. Yeah, well, I'm the wrong person to ask, buckaroo. Do you remember the original Dixieland Jazz Band? Only because we talked about it earlier. Good. You I'm glad. I'm earlier. surprised you even remember. Well, you, you <laughs> literally mentioned it like yeah, 15 minutes still. ago. That's fair. You You're didn't right. know the Gershwins were brothers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the white audiences like relied on these white artists playing this African-American music to for them to be like, oh, that's what it is. But the explosion of radio and some notable jazz musicians who were not afraid to cross the racial line, white audiences started to hear these race records and love them. By 1940, it became really clear that race records were not only able to be sold to African Americans. White people wanted them as well. 
So eventually, race records kind of evolved into rhythm and blues in the 40s. Race records is all about exploitation. It was super unfortunate that it happened at all, especially since these recordings are some of the most authentic, groundbreaking, and revolutionary sounds to ever come out of America. These musicians were incredible and largely shaped the musical landscape of the country, but they were exploited for cheap labor and profit by the record labels. I guess if you want to take any kind of like positive spin on this, at least race records means that we have these recordings. If white people didn't learn that it was profitable, it's possible none of these phenomenal talents would have been recorded at all. Like, it sucks that it had to happen this way, but I, for one, am glad that we know of these artists and know their music. I think those can be separate statements. This yeah. sucks. I'm glad we have these records. Yeah. Wow. Big Bill Brunzi summed up race records pretty well when he said, quote, until I started running in the m- this music business, I had never lived around no people that would kill their own brother for a lousy dollar. End quote. Yeah, that's race records. <laughs> not not the funnest one to talk about, but it's important because, like, it's blues and it's jazz and it's gospel. And as we're, like, kind of moving out of the jazz era and into this kind of, like... It's important to acknowledge. Yeah. It kind of it's a little bridge for all of it. Next week we're talking about Mamie Smith. Yay. And I really like Mamie Smith. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Anything you want to add about race records before we end this episode? It's a shorter one this time. I don't have anything important to say. It's good I it's good to know history. <laughs> Even though I hate history. <laughs> Well, then you're on the right podcast. Wahoo! (laughs) 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 All right. Goodbye. (laughs) I'm just a woman, a lonely woman, waiting on the weary shore. 